I know a family that gets up early on Sunday morning, and uh, they feed the kids, uh, make sure everybody's ready to go. They get dressed in the clothes that are appropriate for the occasion. They, they want to blend in with the crowd, but stand out a little bit. And they hop in their car, and they drive to the venue, and they get out, and they're excited to be there early to find their seats because they are all going to watch Matt Ryan and the Annapolis Colts take on the evil and ugly Tennessee Titans, right? And so, and then there's another family I know that gets up early on Sunday morning, and they get their kids fed and ready and dressed, and they get dressed in clothes that uh, help them to blend in with the crowd a little bit, but stand out a little bit, and they get in the car, and they want to get there early to find their appropriate seats uh, because they're headed over to Grand Park for the baseball tournament, which if their son win, keeps winning, could go all day long. And then there's other families that I know that get up early on Sunday morning and get the kids fed and get dressed in the appropriate clothes for the occasion and uh, hop in the car and they want to get there early to find their seats because they're coming to Genesis Church to worship Jesus with us. And it just reminds me that there are so many things that we can give our time and attention and affection to. But in the story we're going to see today, one woman, Mary, is going to help us see that there was really only one who is worthy of our worship. Well, I'm glad you're here with us again. My name is Steve. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12 if you have them with you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some blue ones on the table in the back. And uh, that's the, the NIV, which is the same version that we usually teach from. And if you don't have a Bible at home, I want to invite you to take one of those with you. It, let it be our gift to you. We've been reading through the book of John together as a church this year. Uh, we're doing this series called Grow. And there's a reading plan at the Info Hub if you want to follow along with us. But I do want to tell you that this is the last week for Grow. Uh, we're going to take a break for the summer, and then we'll come back to it in the fall. Uh, but I want to tell you about a couple of really fun things that are coming up this summer. Uh, first of all, next weekend... We are meeting together as one church in one location at our Carmel campus at 1030 only. And so if you come here, there will not be anything happening here next Sunday. you got to go over to Carmel, and we'll be out on the lawn there. Right now, the weather looks great, so let's keep praying for that. But I hope you'll join us over there. We're gonna, uh, it's a family service, so we'll have kids, adults, everybody there together. We're going to celebrate our kids and students that are moving up, our graduates, and then our kids that are moving up into kindergarten, into third, into sixth grade, and, um, and we've got some fun surprises planned also, uh, but we're going to talk about what the book of Acts says about the local church, but then this summer, June 5th, we're starting a brand new series called Summer of Love, and uh, when you walked in, you probably got this little schedule, this bookmark, um, you can see that, and the reason we wanted to give this to you, well, we're going to be talking about what the Bible has to say about love, the Bible has a lot to say about love, we know that God is a God of love. Uh, but what does that mean for how he responds to his people, how we're supposed to love God, how we're supposed to love one another, how we're supposed to love others in the world? And that's what we're going to talk about this summer. But it's a series that we affectionately at Genesis call a switcheroo series, which means that uh, I might teach a message here, and then I'll go teach the same message the next weekend at Carmel. And so if you're somebody that tends to go back and forth a lot, you need to know uh, what you've seen and what you haven't. So we've put all the titles on there for Noblesville and Carmel so you can see uh, what you, what, what's going to be preached at each campus each week. And then on the back, because we know a lot of us travel in the summer, is how to watch online. If you want to join us there, uh, you can find out how to join us online. You can use that as a bookmark in your Bible, or we gave you these handy little magnets. You can hang it on your refrigerator. I did test this this week. It will hold this up on the refrigerator, but not much else. So, like, don't try to put your kid's report, final essay, on the refrigerator with this magnet, because it will end up on the floor, and your dog will eat it, and that will be bad. 
Um, but we wanted you to be aware of that. But right now we're in John 12. It is our last week uh, for, the, for the spring and the grow series. And the events of John 12 happen right near the end of Jesus's life. Now, right before he'll enter into Jerusalem for the final time, what we have, what's become known to us as the, the triumphal entry, uh, we celebrate that on Palm Sunday. Uh, and what's happening in John 12 is Jesus is gathered with a small group of people for a dinner to celebrate the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, when recounting this story, uh, we see it in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, as well as this uh, event in John. Matthew tells us that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, were there as well. Uh, Mark tells us that the home where this takes place is actually the home of a man named Simon the leper. Or as you can probably assume from the story, Simon the former leper. Because if the disciples are there, there's no way they'd be seated at a table with a, an active leper. So had Jesus healed him? We don't know. We're not told in scripture, but we, we're left to assume that. Um, and so that's where we're going to start at this dinner in verse 1, John 12, 1. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll kind of break it down. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have now, here's my hope for you today as we look at this account. I hope that you'll take some time to put yourself in this room with Jesus and the disciples and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I, I want you to see what they saw. I want you to hear what they heard. And I even want you to smell what they smelled. Now, the passage says that the disciples were reclining at the table. And so if we're going to put ourselves in the room, we need to picture what that looks like. And what we often think about with Jesus eating with his disciples is something like this, uh, Da Vinci's The Last Supper painting, where they're seated at a table, much like they would have been in the 15th century when this was painted. Or, quite honestly, like they might be in the 21st century, well, if they were on a TV show, because they're all on the same side of the table, okay? But, but they wouldn't have been like this. More likely, they would have been reclined at a low table, more like this, where with their heads maybe propped up on one elbow or on a pillow uh, facing the table and then their feet facing away from the table. So when you read these stories about people's feet being washed at dinner, you can kind of picture how that would work. Their feet aren't under the table. They're out looking away from that. So that's what's happening here. Uh, and it's into this scene that Mary walks with her jar of expensive nard. Now, ladies, how many of you have a big jar of nard just sitting on your dresser in your bedroom waiting to be used, right? Yeah, put those hands up high. We all know you do. No, uh, I don't think nard would go very well in today's consumer culture, right? Most of our perfumes have French names, Chanel, J'adore. Uh, nard would not sell very well at the Macy's perfume counter, right? Um, 
And so, but that's, that's what Mary has. She's got this big jar of nard, this expensive perfume, and she kneels, she walks in, she kneels at the feet of Jesus. Uh, one of the gospel accounts tells us that she breaks open this alabaster jar and she pours out this perfume, this nard on his feet and wipes it with her hair. That's the story we have today. And again, it's captured in three of the four gospels. So what is it that makes this story so memorable? Why did three of the four gospel writers write this down? There aren't many stories in Scripture that are in three of the Gospels, but Matthew, Mark, and John all wrote it down. Well, there's a lot of things it could be. First of all, if you have a dinner with a guy like Lazarus, who used to be dead and now is alive, uh, chances are that's going to make an impression. So you might want to write that down, right? That's one reason. Uh, the second reason is there's a lot of symbolism that happens in this story, especially with Mary's anointing of Jesus. It wouldn't have been unusual for a guest at a dinner to have been anointed, um, but typically that was reserved for royalty. And, and so Mary seems to be treating Jesus like a king. Well, at this point, he's not a king. We know he's going to be, we know now he's going to become a king, but there's some foreshadowing there. Now, add to that the nard or perfume Mary used uh, is what would have been used to be, to embalm a dead body, to pour it on a dead body. And uh, thinking about what's going to happen in the next week with the death and resurrection of Jesus, well, the disciples probably could look back at this moment and think about this foreshadowing and remember this as kind of a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. If you've got some time this week, I want to encourage you to read about some of the symbolism that happens in this anointing. But I think the best reason as to why this story is so memorable is actually found in verse 5. Uh, Judas sees the large amount of perfume that Mary uses and suggests it's worth a year's wages. Some translations say 300 denarii, which is 300 days of wages. And so if we were to put that in 2020's Hamilton County language, this is $47,000 worth of perfume. That's the average personal income in Hamilton County, $47,000. Now, when you think about the value of that gift, this becomes a big deal, right? You probably remember something like that. We, we tend to remember the large numbers in our lives. And so if you've ever waited tables, for instance, there's a good chance that you remember the largest tip you've ever received. Maybe you've got a story around that. If you're in sales or if you've ever been in sales for a living, maybe you remember the largest sale you've ever made. Or even if you served as a cashier maybe at a, at a grocery store or at a Target or someplace like that, you may remember the largest tab anybody's ever brought through your cash register line. Uh, if you're a fisherman or a hunter, I know that you probably remember your biggest fish or your biggest deer or your biggest turkey. And you've got a minute-by-minute minute account of how you caught, shot, or trapped it. And I will patiently listen to your story about your fish or your deer or your turkey because I love you. Not because I love hunting or fishing, but I love you. But I'm sure the disciples were stunned by this generous display, this generous gift that Mary poured out on the feet of Jesus. Just thinking about the amount of money and the amount of her life that was wrapped up in that jar of nard. It was the best gift she had. And when we think about worship and Think about what might be a good definition for worship. I think this is a really good definition of worship. Worship is bringing our best gift to Jesus. Now, Mary's gift may have been a really big financial gift, memorable because of its cost, but I'm not talking about necessarily about bringing our best financial gift to Jesus because I want to show you another act of worship that happens in this story. It's in verse 2, and it tells us this. 
that Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Martha served. And if you know anything about the story of Martha and her sister Mary, this tracks, right? Uh, you may remember another story, a previous dinner with Jesus at the house of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. And uh, we see this earlier instance of him eating dinner with them. And Martha is the one making all the preparations. She's uh, fixing the food. She's setting the table. She's getting everything ready for the dinner. And Mary is lounging at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And Martha gets a little upset. And she comes before Jesus and she says, Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing all the work here, that Mary is sitting here? Make her get up and help me. And uh, if you are a sister or have a sister, you can tell by reading this passage that Martha must be the older sister because she's the one complaining, right? How come, Mom, how come she won't help me? So she goes before Jesus and says, I'm doing all the work. She's just sitting around. Make her help me. That's such an older sister thing to say as a dad of girls. Um, uh, so look at Jesus' response, though, in Luke 10, 41. He says, Martha, Martha. And I can't say that without thinking of Jan Brady. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, and indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And because of this event, Martha kind of gets a bad rap. I mean, how dare she be working and cooking and preparing and serving when she should be talking and relating? And all the Marthas in the crowd who have the gift of hospitality or helps you're, be, you're told to be more like Mary, like get your introvert self out of the kitchen and get out there and start relating to some guests, right? Or else you're not using your best gift. But that's not what Jesus was saying. And I think, in fact, if, if we need Marthas. We, we need Marthas in this world. Without Marthas, we would all be starving to death and sitting in our own filth. So we need you. If you're a Martha, we need you. But I think what Jesus is admonishing Martha for in this case was her attitude. Like, you're serving, you're doing what you love to do, but Mary's doing what she loves to do. So why would you get upset with her when you're bringing your gift and she's bringing her gift? Jesus isn't talking to her about her work ethic. He's talking to her about her attitude and what it means to serve and to worship with the right attitude. If you're going to serve, do it with the right attitude. And I think Martha got this message because what we see in this later dinner at this time is Martha's not complaining. She's serving. She's serving with the right attitude, and serving is her best gift. It's her act of worship. And so John, the gospel writer, is not contrasting Mary's extravagant gift with Martha's lack of a gift. No, he's contrasting Mary's extravagant gift with Judas's complaining. Look at this again in verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, if you're in the room, again, put yourself in the room. On the surface, Judah's question sounds like a reasonable one, doesn't it? I mean, this perfume was worth a lot of money. It could have done a lot of good for charity. Just think about a year's worth of your salary and what good that could do if it was given to charity. Now, John goes out of his way to remind us that Judas is the one who would betray Jesus and that he was a thief and that he stole from the money bag. But I want you to remember that John, that John didn't know that in this moment when this was happening. John, the gospel writer, would have been at this dinner 
He would have been lounging at the table with Jesus. He would have seen this whole thing going down. And I promise you that in his mind, he wasn't thinking, oh, Judas is just saying that because he wants to steal more money. Nobody knew that Judas was stealing from the money bag in this moment. How do I know that? Because he was still in charge of the money bag. And if you know somebody's stealing from the money bag, you're not going to leave them in charge, right? I mean, just think about this. At the Last Supper, a, a week from when this happens, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to tell his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And what do they do? They all look around and ask, who? They say, not me, Lord, right? You don't mean me. Who do you mean? You know, they're not all looking at Judas and going, obviously, it's him. I mean, he's the thief. He's the one stealing from the money bag. He's probably even a Patriots fan. Like, they're not doing that, right? Nobody knows that Judas has this character trait. He is one of the 12. And so, although John goes out of his way to tell us that Judas was a thief, take that out of the equation when you're thinking about his question. Couldn't this perfume have been sold and the money given to the poor? In fact, I think it's possible that probably some of the disciples were on his same page. Yeah, good question. Why don't we sell this perfume and give it to the poor? But Jesus is going to point out that this is a false equivalency. This is not, this is not a valid uh, comparison. It's not their money, first of all. It's Mary's money. It's her gift. It's her perfume. And if she wants to spend it in worship instead of giving it to the poor, Jesus says that is an acceptable and effective use of that gift. Look at verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And then he says this, and this is a really powerful statement. He says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, is Jesus saying, hey, you'll always have the poor among you, so don't worry about it. You shouldn't do anything about it. You shouldn't help the poor. No, that's not what he's saying. That would go completely against the rest of Scripture. In fact, if you read through the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, there are a few groups of people that Scripture tells us that we need to constantly be aware of and helping. And those groups are widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Uh, the Bible tells us that those people have fewer rights, less help, that the church needs to be part of helping widows, immigrants, uh, orphans, and the poor. So we need to help the poor. But does that mean that we individually, collectively, as a church, as an organization, as a society, we should give every spare dollar we have to give for the poor? Well, Jesus seems to say no, that it's okay to spend money on worship, that it's okay and effective use of our dollars to invest in things like worship services and Bible studies and evangelistic efforts and other things that point attention and pour out praise on Jesus. And so in front of his disciples, Jesus is affirming Mary's extravagant gift of worship. Now, since we're focusing on Mary's gift in this, one of the questions that I wanted to ask as I read through this passage is, what caused Mary to do this? What caused Mary to pour out her seemingly excessive offering? And so if we want to put ourselves in that room, put ourselves in the situation, I want you to picture this. In fact, you might even close your eyes and just kind of take a look around this imaginary room. Who, who's here? Who's in the room? Well, it's, it's Simon the leper's house, or maybe the former leper, right? Uh, the man who is no longer a leper. Yeah, his life has been changed by Jesus. I, if you keep, keep looking around, you see 12 men. They're, they're now called apostles. Uh, men who have been with Jesus for two or three years of his ministry. Uh, former fishermen, uh, tax collectors, uh, men who the Bible says were ordinary, unschooled men, but they'd spent time with Jesus. And their lives have been completely changed. 
They, they've walked with Jesus. The ones that were there from the beginning saw him turn gallons and gallons and gallons of water into the finest wine. They watched him heal a nobleman's son from a distance, from across space and time. Uh, they've seen him heal lepers and cure blind men and make lame men walk and miraculously feed 5,000 men and their families with just a couple fish and loaves of bread and then do it again in case they missed it, do it again with 4,000 men a few weeks later. They themselves and the disciples were sent out by Jesus into the surrounding cities and towns and drove out demons from the possessed. All of these disciples whose lives were radically changed by being with Jesus. And at the center of it all, the center of this whole dinner was Lazarus. Lazarus who was dead and now is alive again. He, he laid dead in the tomb for four days until, as Paul reminded us last week, he stinketh, right? Mary's dearly loved brother, Lazarus, whom she sent for help from Jesus, but he died anyway. Lazarus, whom Jesus called out from the tomb to walk again amongst the living. Lazarus, who became the poster child for new life in Christ. I mean, think about the symbolism here. Lazarus was dead, but Jesus brought him back to life. He was dead, but Jesus brought him back to life. Do you know anyone else like that? Lazarus' story is my story. And if you're in Christ, Lazarus' story is your story. You were dead, and Jesus brought you back to life. Jesus gave you life. Lazarus was dead. Jesus brought him back to life. I was dead. Jesus brought me back to life. Did you know if you're a follower of Jesus, Lazarus represents you? Look at the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2 of this. He says, as for you, church, as for you, followers of Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, he's talking about Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, like everybody else, he says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, I just love that phrase, God who is rich in mercy. Do you know what it means to be rich in something? It's to have an abundance of it, right? God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Mary's probably watching this story unfold and taking this all in. There's, there's Lazarus, my brother, who I know was dead and now is alive. And then her mind flashes back. I'm just using my sanctified imagination here, okay? This is not scriptural. But her mind flashes back to this story she heard of another time, another dinner where Jesus was dining with some people, this time in the house of a Pharisee. You can read this. You can cap it's captured in Luke chapter 7. This is a separate event, though. There's this woman, the Bible calls her a sinful woman, heard that Jesus was dining at this Pharisee's house. And so she burst into the scene uninvited, and she poured out this perfume on Jesus' head. She anointed his head, and then she was so overwhelmed in this moment, she started crying on Jesus' feet, his dirty feet. His feet that were dirty because the host had committed a breach of etiquette and had failed to wash them before dinner, and as would have been the custom. And so this woman started crying on Jesus' feet, and her tears 
mixed with the dirt from the roads and formed this muddy paste on Jesus' feet and not knowing what else to do, not having a towel handy, she took her hair and she wiped his feet clean with her hair. And Mary's looking around at this dinner space and thinking about this story. And she remembers this expensive jar of perfume that she's been saving for a special occasion. And I think she just looks at this table and thinks, I will never have a better time to pour out this gift on Jesus than right now. Because there is no one else that's worthy of this gift. Oh, that we would come to the place of Mary. Oh, that we could all get to the point where we realize that Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. Friends, we spend so much time and energy and affection and attention on things that have no eternal value. And most of us give all of our time and all of our energy uh, equally to everything we do. In other words, we only have one speed and it's full speed ahead. And for many of us, we've spent the last two years wishing and hoping for things to get back to normal after being so cautious and after being separated from people we love and missing out on travel and school and birthday parties and dinners out. And now that COVID, by God's grace, seems to be largely in the rearview mirror, most of us have brought our lives back to full speed ahead without ever stopping to think or discern or pray, is that the speed we really should be going or does God have something better for us? And so now we're, we're more tired than ever. So then we do have a Sunday morning free or a Sunday evening. You know what? It just feels good to just sit at home and relax and veg out and sit on the couch. And so we skip that worship service or we skip our small group altogether. And then uh, if we don't skip it, we head in here at full speed and we get into our seats right as the second song is starting. And then we wonder why we're tired all the time. And we're realizing that Jesus just gets our leftovers. And friends, I'm preaching to me right now. I'm not preaching to you. I mean, I might be preaching to you, but it's because I'm preaching to me. We would be so much better off if we would just take a moment to look around our lives and look at where Jesus has an impact and worship him for that. Just think about where he's made things better and realize that he is the one that's worthy of our worship. But then what if you look at your life and there's some tough stuff going on right now. Like what if the divorce or the illness or the broken friendship or the recent death or the bad church experience has caused you to doubt the goodness of God? You know, what if you're in a spot where you can't even see Jesus' good works in your life? Well, if that's you, I'd encourage you not to look at what Jesus has done for you or will do for you, but instead... Just think about who he is. You know, it's who he is that makes him worthy of our worship. Just think about this. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. That in a world filled with darkness. Hey, uh, how long would I have to stand up here to convince you the world is filled with darkness? Would it take a long time? Not long, right? You can turn on the TV. You can turn on the news. You can see it right away. In a world full of darkness... Jesus is the light. He provides hope for the hopeless. He provides direction for the aimless. Uh, he's the good shepherd. He, he leads his sheep to safety. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. He is our provider and protector. He, he's the bread of life. 
Jesus himself is the one true source of nourishment for our souls. That all of us have this empty spot inside of us that can only be filled by Jesus. Nothing else in our lives can fill that. He is worthy of our worship because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Bible teaches that you and I are separated from God by our sin, but that Jesus came to bear the weight of that sin so that we don't have to, and that he is the resurrection and the life. Because he overcame the grave, we are spared from eternity in hell and given the gift of eternity in heaven with God forever. And finally, he's the giver of the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus left the earth and ascended into heaven, he promised that he was going to send another, a helper for us, the Holy Spirit that would walk with us, that would guide us and lead us. And if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you right now, and he will guide you. And you know that Mary didn't have all this information. She, she didn't know all of this when she made her offering to Jesus. But on this side of the cross, we can now see the complete picture of Jesus's work and his goodness. And we have even more reason to give him our very best gift in worship because he is worthy. But hey, you don't have to come to church to worship Jesus. You probably know that. You can do it anywhere. You can worship him in your car. You can worship him on the ball field. You can worship him in your office or your workplace. You can give him your very best gift wherever you are. But I want you to know there's something special about coming here and gathering as a group and worshiping him together. Put yourself back in that room for a minute. I just want you to see, hear, and smell one other thing. You've watched Mary anoint the feet of Jesus with this perfume, and then she was down on the ground wiping his feet with her hair. And then she walks past you and her hair brushes up against your shoulder and all of a sudden you breathe in and you get a sharp whiff of the aroma and you know she's been with Jesus. And that smell, it lingers on her hair for days after that. Anybody who encountered Mary could tell that she's been a part of something special. When we come into a place like this with, with people like these, I mean, look around you. Look at the amazing people in this room. We come in here and we worship together. We lay our very best gifts at the feet of Jesus. We are left with his aroma. This clings to us for days. We carry around the residue of this for days afterwards. I, I really believe a lot of times that when we leave this place, people can sense that we have spent time with Jesus. And I think that's why it's so important for us to worship together. And that's why it's important that we do it frequently because, friends, we can only pour out what's inside of us. And for many of us, our pace of life drains us empty. But when we come into the presence of the Lord and we fall at his feet and we worship him in those moments, we are filled back up to the brim and we're ready to go and take on the rest of the world. That's why we got to remember, if we forget everything else, is that he that Jesus is the only one that's worthy of our worship. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, you are worthy. And even in those times when we don't see the goodness of God, we know that you are all of these things. You are the light of the world. You are the good shepherd. You are the bread of life. You are the resurrection and the life. You're the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are the giver of the Holy Spirit, and we are thankful for that. 
even in those moments when we might be struggling with something really bad, really deep in our lives, Lord, we, we're thankful that you sent Jesus to be all those things for us. And, and God, we want our worship and every form that it takes to be a pleasing aroma to you. We want it to be something that you look down on and that you're thankful for your children giving you worship. And so as we go into this time of communion and then we go into this time of musical worship, God, I just pray that it would be pleasing to you, that we would pour out our best gift to you, Lord, that you would see our love for you reflected in that because your love is reflected in everything that you do. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, 